Welcome to Spatialized, a podcast navigating critical geography. I'm Tucker Landisman. Spatialized is a podcast about geographers and other critical thinking scholars who thrive within and outside of the confines of the academic ivory towers. Today's show is an interview with Dr. Andrea Gibbons. Andrea is a geographer and urban planner who works on issues of housing, homelessness, and race class segregation. Her PhD project centered race and white supremacy within the political economy of urban development of Los Angeles. And it was one of the best theses I've ever read. So we talked about that and how she managed to transform her thesis into a book almost immediately. We also talked about her intellectual trajectory, theory, scholar activism, and creative writing. I hope you enjoy. Andrea Gibbons, welcome to Spatialized. Thank you for having me. Um, Dr. Andrea Gibbons, geographer, scholar, essayist, fiction writer, activist, editor, brilliant, and general badass oh um you're currently <laughs> doing the postdoc shuffle dance uh at the sustainable housing and urban studies unit at the university of salford yeah um and you currently have a uh, we, well you have a forthcoming book from verso titled city of segregation 100 years of struggle for housing in los angeles yes um so you do and have done so much that I don't know where best to start. <laughs> All right. But I do want to get to as much as possible. So let's <laughs> okay. dig in with the book first. Um, City okay. of Segregation, 100 Years of Struggle for Housing in Los Angeles, as it's slated for publication next year for Verso, correct? Yeah, it is. Yeah. I was so anxious to get this scheduled before your publication date but I confused myself into thinking it was September of 2017 and not 2018. It was originally going to be November of this year um, but it's gotten pushed back because they're slow and then I was slow so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm really happy that I didn't start off. like angrily tweeting at Verso about why I couldn't download your ebook. <laughs> that would have been fun. But um <laughs> Um, so I do want to get to why it takes so damn long to publish a book, but uh, before we do that, let's kind of focus on the content. Do you have like a, I don't know, one or two minute book pitch that, that you've rehearsed? No. <laughs> no, I don't. I, I should. I, I, I did. I, I was able to like condense this into a few minutes like a year ago, but I haven't done it for ages, but I could try. Um, I mean, basically it's, it's a historical look at the development of Los Angeles, and it's arguing that um, racism has been a driving factor of, of how Los Angeles has developed over time, and that it's sort of ideas of race were built into um, the way that property values worked, um, and this was primarily through the professionalization of the real estate industry. Um, so this was at a time when white supremacy was open, acknowledged, um, uh, and it was completely legal to discriminate, um, and so, and so that really cemented this relationship between race and property value, and that you can see that developing. And so, the book looks at the years of decades, hundreds of years of struggle um, to 
um, primarily by African-American communities, but of course they were working with Mexican, with um, Asian, with Native American um, groups who were all um, unable to live where they wanted. And so it's this civil rights struggle of, of, of decades to, to live where they want. And, and they have these huge victories. And so really, if segregation was very simple, then they should have won ages ago. Um, and they haven't. And so I look at the way that race is sort of developed into this property values in ways that are still with us today. And so that really needs to be looked at. And in turn, how the segregation as resulted is in that has helped form our ideas of race itself and sort of what community is, what a neighborhood is. I think that was reasonably succinct. I don't know. No, I think that was great. I think that's good. Um, if we can rewind to before you even started the PhD, you were living in Los Angeles before you moved to London, right? Yes. Yes, I was. Yeah. Um, I mean, so basically the PhD, I mean, it's funny. It took me a long time to, to get there to, to actually to my topic, (laughs) So I started at London School of Economics um, planning to do corporate research around um, around labor issues uh, and sort of international labor issues. And I wanted to do a case study that looked at sort of labor in the U.S. and the U.K. Um, and, and, and that's sort of, but in my time in Los Angeles, I had worked as a tenant organizer, community organizer for, for years, for seven years, um, and had worked with immigrants for three years before that around um, asylum, getting people asylum um, and refugee status and domestic violence. Um, and I just couldn't, like, I just couldn't stop thinking about it. I couldn't leave it alone. I wanted to think about it theoretically. Um, and so I, I ended up after my first year switching to this topic. Uh, so that's looking at housing and and, and the, the sort of bigger things that are impacting on, on housing in Los Angeles and why. Um, and primarily trying to answer the question of just how after all these civil rights victories like how is it more segregated now than than it was in the 60s like how is that possible um and it wasn't something i was reading in the stuff that was i found really inspiring about the cities like david harvey or like neil smith talks about it a little i mean they both they all talk about it a little bit but to none of them was it as central as i thought it needed to be um from my experience living in these deeply segregated spaces um that were shaping activist responses that were shaping the amount of support we could get that were shaping how people in UCLA, where I did my master's, were talking about um, South Central, were talking about these issues. So, so that's how I ended up doing it. But it was a very long path. <laughs> so, were these questions that ultimately led you um, or guided you through your PhD process? Were they questions that you had while living in Los Angeles and and organizing there and and um, doing your master's and in, in planning? They were, I mean, they were, they were to a certain extent, um, but they weren't, um, like, I wasn't really thinking about them theoretically. Like, I, I had a long time, for a long time, I, I didn't want to think theoretically about things because the spaces that I was in where theoretical thinking was happening, I found so alienating and I found them to be missing so much of the point, in my opinion. <laughs> um, and, and, and so that was true of UCLA, though, actually with other students, I found other students that were doing work similar to mine. Um, we had some really amazing conversations and I have a lot of colleagues um, that are doing research now in LA. But like the, the, a lot of the classes themselves, I found frustrating. And, and that's saying a lot because they're miles ahead of like where LSE is or anywhere in the UK, I think, in terms of their connection to community. And, um, 
but it really took me coming here, I think, and having some distance from the activist work I was doing and really engaging with some of the literature around cities to really see the gaps and to really start asking some of these harder questions about so is it, I, what I've written is actually really thinking about real estate, about political economy, about so it's, that's not really stuff that I was thinking too much about when I was in L.A. What I think is really interesting about you, at least your dissertation is that you're talking about land value and land use and centralizing race in that theorization, but you're you also centralized resistance and you're exploring these concepts through moments of resistance and one of the things that you wrote that that really spoke to me was that in looking at resistance to hegemonic relations you can really see the limits to hegemony and and yeah i i wonder how did you get there and how did you make that decision to say okay the best way to talk about how white supremacy plays such a central role in how cities are formed and segregation, um, class dynamic is is actually through res- the movements that resist those forces. I think. I mean, I think part of that's my background because I've always resisted, <laughs> mm-hmm. and and there always is resistance. And and I think just having grown up poor, having like having grown up really poor. Uh, I sort of, you're always, people never acknowledge you, A, as a human being, really, in a lot of ways, but B, that that you have any power of your own. That So so it's always been really important to me, um, and that's really reflected in how dominant culture writes history. I mean, it's, and, and it's, that's a common theme, right, across a lot of, a lot of work, sort of recapturing history, you know, sort of uncovering these histories that are, that are ignored or denied, and so um, that's always been really important to me and then having been part of this huge resistance struggle and, and living in South Central for example like I would read these narratives of South Central that 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 just I couldn't I couldn't understand where they were coming from in a way because there's so much vibrant stuff happening there that wouldn't be acknowledged hmm. that's part of the picture or like reading Louis Wakonk's work on Chicago like there's so much really good stuff to think about in terms of how power works and how marginalization works and but at the same time like resistance is missing like the people aren't in it and it was like reading stuff like that and having these really strong reactions to it um and I remember actually since you asked that question I just remember one of the PhD classes we had our first year it was actually Murray Lowe that came in and did a thing about power um and what power was and it just struck me that you can have all these, I think it's really important to have a very complex idea of power and I, and I like Foucault, and, but at the same time, it's like when you fight to change something, that's when you really understand what power is because <laughs> you always hit a wall, like you always hit the wall and, and then you really understand what power will give you and what they won't. And I think that's the real line that we have to push past. You know, I mean, that's what, what it takes to win is, is to push those walls back. Um, and and I found it really frustrating that other people didn't feel this same way, <laughs> but but because um, to me it's so obvious, it's so obvious. Coming again, coming from an activist background and coming from a background where people will always tell you you can't get further than this, or you know, always putting limits down, always thinking you won't be able to do X, Y, or Z, or that that there's always those boundaries, and that's what we need to be pushing. And and once you push those, that's really where. So it seemed natural to me to look at um, 
I mean, that was written into my original proposal, sort of this idea that I wanted to explore those the, those limits, and that the only way to really do that is is through what people had tried to achieve, and and where that had failed. In choosing moments of resistance, you also managed to do、uh, what so many other kind of classic structural analysis fails at, which is recognizing voice and agency in the poor and and dispossessed. Yeah. I hope I did. I'm glad you. I'm glad you say that because that was, yeah, so important to me. And you do so without romanticizing or fetishizing resistance.、Yeah. You know, recognizing oh, there are limits to. Yeah, I, I think to this、a, activism. Yeah, I think that's important, and I think, and I think that's why, because we talk a lot about about what academia is or what the academy is and what praxis is, and I think that's really where praxis is really important, because it. It sort of enforces those kinds of ways of thinking about things. I don't know. So one of the concepts that that you develop, and we're not going to spend a ton of time on on what you wrote because I'd I'd like to get to everything else that you do, but、um, is this concept of community of consent?、Mm. And first, I wonder if if you could just tell me a little bit more about community community of consent. What does it mean? When did you come up with it during the research process, and why was it important? So, so because I was so fascinated with walls and limits, and and sort of that, what is limiting how you think about change, what your vision is, what your goals are,、um, and what what really, I mean, of course, hegemony is the obvious. Of, I really love Gramsci and Gramsci's idea of hegemony because I think that helps on. Helps understand where those limits come from, both the ones within that we carry within ourselves, as well as the ones that you face,、um, and the fact that I think most research, not most, a lot of research here, particularly in the English language, I found some stuff in Spanish that's pretty amazing, that's very different, but the stuff here,、um, it's it's very focused on how consent is built,、uh, and and so I was writing at the same time that.、Um, That like Trayvon was killed and and Black Lives Matter and like I just couldn't Trayvon like that was just a, a turning point for me as it was for a lot of people I think、um, I can't quite remember when that happened if it happened before I mean it always been I mean because it always been a huge issue police brutality and and just the violence inflicted on our communities and and the fact that actually there there was definitely consent going on but there was a whole lot of coercion you know in the, that classic sort of Gramscian.、Um, Formulation that it's that it's consent and domination, and I remember when it when it struck me. But I just realized that like that sort of really helps understand how white supremacy works. Is that you have a whole community of of people that by virtue of their skin color,、um, are sort of are are not subject to coercion in the same way that other communities are. I mean, so police treat them well, you know. And, I, and I'm not saying this is for. I mean, there's other so so thinking intersectionally, of course, these other. Sort of factors of oppression. So, like I've got a my brother's friend Ray is like musician and he's like shaggy looking and he smokes a lot of dope. So he gets pulled over all the time, even though he's white. But but it's nothing compared to like some of the the black kids I know, young men.、Um, and of course, if you're queer, you. So I mean, there's all these other other things going on. But 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 Overall, there's there's this whiteness, and as part of white privilege, gives you this protection, and it means you don't have to worry about about the coercion of the state in most cases. Whereas for whole generations of of younger people of color, coercion's like 
the face of the state that they understand and, and um, get most. So so that's sort of thinking about that. I, I thought community of consent sort of, so you have community of consent and then you have communities that are subjected to coercion and that would be the best, um, the best possible, well, not the best possible, but that would be a formulation to try and get at that. It's funny though, because my examiners didn't like it. And so it's kind of absent. It's like the concept's not absent from that book, but that term is absent from the book. But every now and then I'm like, oh, maybe I should play with that more or... Examiners yeah. often push back on new terms and concepts. Yeah, yeah. That's our show. Thanks for listening. You can find more of Andrea Gibbons' work in the show notes, and you can find us on Twitter at at SpatializedPod or online at www.spatializedpodcast.com. We're working on a show about mental health of PhD students and early career researchers and would love your participation. More information is on our website. Spatialized is a podcast produced by Archetypal Media, 